Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Taxpayer Talk. Peter Williams is away this week, so yours truly, Jordan Williams, no relation, is filling in. And we are still fighting for lower taxes, less waste and more transparency. This week I'm sitting down with Callum Purvis, who recently joined the organisation as our new campaigns manager, as well as a special guest who I've tapped on the shoulder. He happens to be on holiday here in New Zealand, and he is the chief executive of our sister organisation in Westminster, John O'Connell. You'll be able to tell the moment that Callum starts speaking that it's a little bit of a UK-focused episode this week, but given the events at number 10 and the revolving door there, it is perhaps serendipitous that we will have the opportunity to talk UK politics by someone very much inside Tufton Street or inside the think tank world in Westminster and someone uh, who recently departed the Conservative Party in the UK. A few months ago, I sat down with Louis Holbrook on his last day at the Taxpayers' Union before he took off to South America. And we hinted in that episode that we were very happy with his replacement. Louis and I were both heavily involved in the recruitment. And it is with great delight that I can introduce now Callum Purvis, our new National Campaigns Manager, who has arrived from Scotland. Callum, welcome to the, organi- welcome to the Taxpayers' Union and welcome to Taxpayer Talk. Thank you. So you've been here now... What, coming up two months, you've been had your uh, head down uh, getting to grips with both the organisation and the New Zealand body politic. From Scotland, Callum has a master's degree in economics from St Andrews. He is a former councillor. Indeed, he was the youngest ever elected to Perth and Kinross Council. So, And he walks the talk. One of the things that impressed us in uh, our background research on Callum and Uh, when we interviewed him, is that he actually crossed the floor as, what, a 23-year-old? How old? Uh, Yeah, I think probably that was about the time when I uh, took that decision. A 23-year-old young councillor to vote against a Tory budget or a Conservative Party budget on council because it broke an election commitment and increased council taxes. Subsequent to that... Callum worked in Holyrood as a political researcher and advisor at the Scottish Parliament uh, and subsequently for the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party uh, as the regional campaign manager responsible for Northern Scotland, basically everything north of Dundee, which I had a look at on a map, Callum, and it looks like you're responsible for about a quarter of the UK. from from quite a big area, (laughs) yes. What you're saying. So welcome to Wellington. I want to jump straight into... Rather than before we talk economics and politics, how on earth did we talk you to come down to the other side of the world uh, to Windy Wellington? Well, uh, thank you, Jordan, for that introduction. Um, I think I was looking for a change, something a bit different. I had been working uh, for the Conservative Party for quite some time, and in May, my council term was up. I'd taken the decision uh, not to stand again in that election, and while I was still interested in doing something related to politics and economics, most of my working life had been in Scotland to date. 
and I wanted to get a change of scene. Um, I didn't quite think I would end up here on the other side of the world from, from home, um, but I'm very much enjoying it. It's a beautiful country um, and it's been very interesting getting to grips with the local political scene and dynamics here. So what came first? Was it the politics or the, or the economics? I think probably the politics. I've always been interested in current affairs. Um, we would talk about it a lot at home. Um, I enjoyed debating at school. I remember uh, getting involved in, in lots of debates in the run-up to the Scottish independence referendum, which I think ignited an interest in politics for a lot of people uh, my are age you, uh, in Scotland. On the, on the Indy Ref, on the independence referendum, are you a Remainer or a Lever? Well, I think uh, membership of the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party, <laughs> to give it its full title, um, does necessitate uh, that someone uh, supports Scotland's place in the, in the United Kingdom. And that was my first campaign and I think where I got the bug for politics and political campaigning. And how on earth does a... So how old were you when you were elected onto council? 22, 21? Uh, 20. 20? Mm. How do you... Because one of the things that that we ask and all Lewin and I mentioned, I don't know if you've heard that podcast, but um, Lewin and I reveal a question we always ask, which we asked you uh, uh, for new staff, is what was what what drove you in terms of getting into politics and what what are the particular areas of public policy, uh, the levers you would want to pull. You don't come across, and now that I've got to know you better, I'm much more confident of it, as what I'd call an apparatchik. It's not the politics for the sake of politics or any of the, um, the other stuff. Now, it's usually the apparatchiks that go into politics young. How did you find yourself as a councillor? <laughs> I'd always said to myself that I would do something else first, something in business or um, uh, another another field before or, going straight or, or, or into, work at a taxpayers union to politics, <laughs> indeed, or working at the taxpayers union. Um, it kind of happened by accident, to be honest, with the council. I was tasked with trying to find a candidate in my in my local ward uh, of Kinrosher, uh, where I was uh, where I was raised and had lived all my life. Um, we were struggling somewhat to find a candidate, and then someone said to me, "Why don't you do it?" And I'd always been quite involved in the, in the local community, whether that was through the school or other organisations interested in what I could do to help people uh, locally. And I thought, why not? I'm going to go for it. We didn't have a councillor in that ward at uh, that time. We had come fifth in the last election. It wasn't guaranteed that um, I would get elected, but I, I fought it hard, knocked on thousands of doors in my in my local ward talking to as many people as possible and ended up coming coming first in that election so yeah um it kind it kind of was an accident but i very much enjoyed it is the demog is the demographic for councillors the same as here that it's generally uh it's not a retirement job but it's there's not a lot of 22 year olds that that are elected onto council sorry 20 year olds rather that are elected to council i think that's that's fair to say for most people it's a job that they um, either do when they're retired or something that they maybe spend the equivalent of one or two days a week doing uh, out of hours in the evenings, mm. that type of thing. And because of the, the salary that's paid, it is quite difficult for someone to do that as a full-time job. So most people do combine it with, with something else. I was quite lucky working for the, the party and the parliament at the same time um, that that meant that I could, I could focus on my, my uh, council work um, quite flexibly without having to 
negotiate that with an employer. See, we've lost that really because councils here is unfortunately for so many now a full-time job. It's a, um, I, I think it's a great, it's a great shame. When we were onboarding you, I recall your surprise, the extent to which our centre-right parties don't stand at the council level. And you've explained to myself and the staff here the extent to which there's caucusing and whipping even at around local councils in relation to the parties. But as a young councillor elected as a Tory, you crossed the floor and voted against a budget put forward by uh, the Tories. Take us through that process, why you did it, and, and I mean, for, for you to express surprise that there's no whipping here, but you've breached the whip. Take us through that. I think it's really helpful for voters to be able to see the basic principles that a candidate will have. It's very difficult if all the candidates are independents to be able to work out where they stand on council tax or cutting bureaucracy. Or three waters. Or or three waters (laughs) or whatever, slowing speed limits, that type of thing. So it is useful to have that ready reckoner for voters. However, I don't believe in whipping, uh, that whipping should be absolute. I think that if people feel strongly about something, commitments that they made in an election, or they think that something in their particular ward requires them to vote a different way. And then I don't think that's a bad thing. We don't all need to think the same way just because we're in one particular party. The reason why I defied the whip in that particular instance, although there were others, and perhaps we can talk about that another time, was because we had made commitments in the election that we would freeze the council tax Uh, in our first year, try to keep it as low as possible in subsequent years. And we would do that by cutting waste and cutting bureaucracy within the council. But I soon discovered that it wasn't councillors who ran the council, it was the officials. And officials would put forward papers and policies and councillors would effectively just rubber stamp them. So the policies that we were putting forward, the budgets that we were putting forward could have been put forward by the previous SNP administration. And that really frustrated me. You elect people, your democratically elected representatives, to enact policies that they've promised to you. And when we're not doing it, not just because it's not possible, but because officials are telling us not to, which is what happened, I didn't think that was right. And in in that instance, I decided... Uh, on one occasion not to vote for the budget. On another occasion, I put up uh, an alternative budget that demonstrated that it was entirely possible to reduce council tax. <laughs> Officials must have hated having uh, someone with an economics degree putting up an alternate budget from the floor. Yes, um, I, I, I did find actually that the we were... When you were preparing the budgets, uh, the main groups tended to have the very senior officials working with them. But we had more junior ones because it was something unorthodox and it wasn't going to pass, unfortunately. But they were much more pragmatic. And I think they actually valued the challenge. It does seem that as people work their way further and further up the chain, as their salaries increase, that they become more and more detached from the real world. You mean mean the 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 officials? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's quite interesting because in, in New Zealand there doesn't sound well there doesn't seem to be as much official support at least outside uh, uh, Auckland and possibly the other metropolitan councils uh, where there's sort of one on one you sort of have the mayor's office and the the, the chairs of the committees uh, which of course now our, our chairs choose but I sense in the feedback we get from 
independent councillors that are more on the centre right of politics or or Democrats, um, and so lean uh, towards us on a lot of the campaigns, say that they are often un- they get elected, but there's not a lot they can do because they come up against officials that say, well, no, you're about governance and this is about management. And we've sort of adopted this theory where, which is fine, that separation, but it seems to undermine one of the key jobs of governance, which is peer-reviewing management and occasionally taking deep dives when something is is of concern. Is that the case in the UK or is that uniquely a New Zealand problem? No, it's a problem in the UK too, um, particularly for individual councillors. So in terms of my support doing my my local work, I got one twentieth of a secretary, which is not really um, enough to do anything. Um, I do find that the support that you get from officials tends to increase when you're suggesting things that they don't want to do because they're trying to drive you away from that that particular uh, policy or particular approach. Um, So that's when they tend to uh, try to be as helpful as possible as they might as they might see it, but it is a problem. It does make it difficult for councillors to um, to do their work. If you uh, would you ever do it again? Do you regret your time in elected office? No, I don't regret it. I enjoyed many parts of it, particularly when you were able to get policy wins for for people in your local community. That was my favourite bit. I think that. If I were to go back to local government, I would need to see some fundamental changes. The main thing that I thought meant that local government doesn't work in Scotland was that artificial split between strategic and operational that that you talked about. I have no interest in trying to set the the bin man's shift pattern or timetable, which is sometimes what you would think officials thought I was doing um, in trying to push forward policies. But the way things are operationally delivered by officials undoubtedly has an impact on whether you can deliver your strategic objectives. If you look at ministers, for example, they're held fully accountable for what goes on in their departments, even if they're not directly accountable for for everything. So I think it breaks that link. Accountable, but not necessarily delivered. Not necessarily responsible. Mm. We were told, the first thing that we were told when we sat down a few hours after being elected, was that you as a councillor are responsible for strategic policy uh, and we as officials are responsible for operational policy and never the twain shall meet. But I found that in Scotland, and I think in Scotland it's much worse than it is in England, that that was sometimes used as a threat. We had something called the the Code of Conduct, which was um, enforced by a standards commissioner. And whenever you would talk about something uh, that you wanted to do differently the retort from officers would usually be that straying into operational matters and that might be a standards issue, councillor. This sounds very familiar to you. Now, for most, for most councillors, they would back down. Yeah. And that was an easy way of putting them back in their box. But for a few, of which I was one, we pushed back on that and that resulted in, in officials making complaints, thankfully of which uh, I and others um, have, have been cleared. But... It was used as a way of as a, as restricting what yep. councillors could and couldn't do. And that's wrong. David Cameron took the right decision to abolish uh, the, the, the standards commissioner in England, um, but it remains in Scotland because of the devolution settlement. And I think until that is changed, yes, we need to uphold standards, 
clearly if people are, and we have had examples of councillors that have you know, been doing things that were criminal, that's something that the criminal justice system should deal with. But when it comes to how people are uh, dealing with officials or what policies they want to bring forward, I really believe that the only person or people who should be making a determination on whether someone is fit for office or not are the voters. It's quite simple, or I, as I see it. Mm. No, I, look, I totally agree. We, we've had instances of, um, in New Zealand of exactly that, of councillors that have been sort of the, the, the fly in the ointment or sort of led the opposition charges, which is important in a democracy. You need the contrarians and the people asking the awkward questions, even if they are a pain in the, in the butt for the majority, uh, whereby it's then gone to, delegated to officials to investigate um, whether they were rude to officials and things like that. And there's a real fox guard in the hen, hen house type situation. Let's move to Holyrood, which I just love saying. Uh, <laughs> Tell us what you were doing for the party and at Parliament. and uh, what, Which MP were you, were you advising? Um, so I worked for Alexander Stewart, a member of the Scottish Parliament for Mid-Scotland and Fife. Um, I was involved with him for, for quite some time, uh, helping him with his campaigns when he stood for Westminster and then also his campaigns uh, when he uh, was elected to uh, Holyrood, initially doing research, speech writing, briefing papers, that type of thing, and then latterly in more of a political advisory role to him. And given the rollercoaster ride that is British politics uh, at the moment, what, well, actually first let me ask, were you Rishi or a Liz Trust supporter in the, in the last, in the, sorry, not the last, the one before it, leadership election? <laughs> yes, the one before <laughs> it. Well, as I was working for the party right up until uh, that election happened, I had to be neutral during the contest, um, but I did vote for Liz Truss. I swithered, and primarily because of the issues that have been borne out um, and that we've seen with the, the mini-budget, I thought that Liz is an instinctive libertarian. I think that the policies that she advocated were the right ones, and had they set out at their mini-budget the spending, uh, how they were going to fund these policies, these uh, additional spending commitments and tax cuts that uh, she was proposing, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're, we're now in. And that's the value of Rishi, I suppose, that he promoted in that contest, sound money, fiscal conservatism, which perhaps for fiscal a lot of people... Fiscal conservatism with higher taxes, though. I mean, it's not... I mean, this is... You, you, you've touched the bugbear of mine that the media love to frame Liz Trust as some sort of um, absolute out there libertarian, whereas all she was doing is returning taxes to what they were under under Tony Blair. That's correct. Um, in relation to the additional rate, uh, it was 40 pence in the pound, I think, right up until April 2010, and Cameron came in in May 2010. I think that was a trap that was set by the Labour Party at the Brown. time. Yep. Yep. They thought that the Conservatives couldn't resist bringing it down. Absolutely the right policy. Um, putting my political party staffer hat on, I think perhaps it was the wrong time in the electoral cycle to bring that in. Yep. Um, just 18 months to two years out from the election, that's the type of thing you do immediately after having won a five-year term, I think, if you're going to, to do it. But 
there was a lot of discussion in the UK about Thatcherism versus Reaganism, um, with Rishi Sunak being... Take uh, us through, what do you mean by that? So Thatcherism um, in that, yes, Margaret Thatcher very clearly supported lower taxes and abolishing t many taxes as she did throughout her time in office, um, but she also prioritised prioritized sound money. So balanced the books, and in some cases, in her initial couple of years, put taxes up in order to get the, um, the, the budget on a stable footing before then going on to reduce taxes significantly throughout the rest of her term. Compared to, to Reaganism, as, as some in the, the UK media had termed Liz Truss's policies, which were going with unfunded tax cuts, um, if you look at what happened in the US at that time, you had very, very high interest rates, much higher than we're seeing at the moment. And also the currency that the US government were dealing with was, of course, the US dollar. Um, so you have a bit more latitude to be able to um, enact those policies. Um, and that was that was the argument that was being made. And perhaps that's been that's been borne out in, in what's happened. You proudly as a councillor, I'm going to go back for a moment. Uh, claimed zero expenses in your mm -hmm. time as the council I, I read online. What, why was that? Do you think that councils, councillors and MPs or um, should get expense allowances? Obviously, the Westminster had a huge expense scandal what a, 10 years ago now. Uh, I'm not sure if, if Scotland did, but mm -hmm. that's a pretty extreme position to take to claim nothing at all, especially when you're not paid... Here, at least, if you're a medium-sized city, it's equivalent of a full-time wage. Yeah. I'm not against expenses for members of parliament, for councillors. I think that it's important that they're able to do their job and to be able to um, claim back expenses for, for travel, particularly if they are living um, quite far away from whether that's the council chamber or the, the parliament in which they, they sit. But I think that there have been too many instances in the past, as you mentioned, the expenses scandal. But even now, seeing things, you know... Paying for duck houses and... Well, and duck houses <laughs> at the time. But even now, MPs claiming, you know, multiple uh, pairs of Apple AirPods that are essential for their, their business. If you want that and you're on an MP salary, you can quite easily pay for that mm. yourself. So I just thought that we should aim to, as elected representatives, keep our burden to the taxpayer to a minimum. Um, and my ward was reasonably uh, compact, although it was a rural ward, it wasn't one of these massive ones um, that would be difficult to get around and expensive to get around. Um, I felt that I didn't need to claim those expenses, so I didn't. Um, and while I don't object to people who do, I think that they should try and keep them to uh, as much of a minimum as they can. One of the, obviously, as you're aware, one of the big campaigns here at the moment is around the three waters and the government likes to tout Scotland mm. as this uh, uh, utopia of uh, of fresh storm uh, uh, and um, wastewater. Uh, is Scottish water fantastic given your experience as a councillor? Well, I think if you asked anyone in Scotland whether Scottish water was fantastic, uh, you would get an emphatic no to that. Um, there are differences, which is why I was surprised that the New Zealand government are looking to Scotland as a model. Um, as far as I'm aware, councils have never had water assets. There were previously regional boards that have been merged into one that covers the whole of Scotland now. 
But so the, like the American system of drainage commissioners and things like that, was it? Uh, yeah, region, regional boards. I think there were maybe some councillors on that, but yeah. uh, now it's an entirely separate body that's just accountable to um, the Scottish Parliament. The problems are, though, that they continue to discharge on a regular basis um, sewage into rivers, into streams, um, which is causing real problems for, um, for, for wildlife on, that's the whole, and for that, the environment. That's one of the key bases for why we're wanting to move to this model. Yeah, I think it, it cannot be said that it's a panacea. There are still problems which you need to, if you, you want to improve your water infrastructure, you're going to have to invest in it, you're going to have to manage it properly. Um, but I don't think that the Scottish water model is going to fix all of those, all of those problems. Other than our direction of travel on uh, uh, public policy in uh, water services, mm. what are your impressions of New Zealand so far? Um, politically? Both politically um, and w what's been your biggest surprise? I have seen a lot of parallels actually with Scotland. So putting the, the Scottish water, three waters uh, example to one side, there does seem to be similarities in that both governments are keen on centralisation. Um, a number of organisations that were previously uh, had local bodies, um, whether that's the polytechnics or um, we're seeing with the, the, the water as well, um, the government seems, and the district health boards, I suppose, recently, keen to pull those all together. That's the exact same thing that's happening in Scotland, which, as someone who's a local councillor and for all local <laughs> government's faults, I do believe in, in localism and uh, democracy being as close to local people as possible. Oh, you're radical. And uh, <laughs> I think that that is a, a concerning trend. Clearly, also, we've seen um, a government that... Uh, has broken a lot of its promises, committing to new taxes, um, but uh, seeming to come up with lots of uh, clever or, or not so clever ways of uh, trying to describe them as something else. That's very similar to Scotland as well. And also the lack of transparency around decision making. Uh, we've seen bills uh, mm. that weren't related to COVID being rushed through. That was a real problem in Scotland too. But just more generally, um, this lack of accountability um, that we see in government here uh, is very familiar to me, um, which is a shame. I thought I might be coming to somewhere that uh, perhaps wasn't quite as bad in that regard, but clearly that's not the case. It's interesting. The, we pride ourselves around freedom of information that where we think the New Zealand government is very transparent, but it constantly surprises me some of the stories our British equivalent managed to get mm. out of the government because, frankly, the, the freedom of information law, I think as it pertains to England as opposed... Is it a separate regime in Scotland? It is, but it's very similar. Yeah, because, I mean, as an example, we really struggle to get payroll data. I mean, and Auckland Council, when we published that Town Hall Rich List, went absolutely um, berserk. Mm -hmm. uh, and whereas you can look up... Um, and I, and I obviously know this, having recruited recently from the UK, that <laughs> you, you can look up even the um, most junior person in number 10, uh, what their salary is, and get it to the precise dollar. Mm. There is a heck of a lot more spending transparency uh, in the UK because so much the government hides behind privacy here or commercial sensitivity. Uh, one of the questions I um, have for you around local government here was could you always get information? Because here, 
uh, something that astonishes me is that unlike direct company directors, councillors here don't have a statutory right to information. Did you ever feel that you were compromised as a councillor because you were unable to get straight answers from officials? And was that legislative or just cultural? I think that that was a problem and comes back to some of the issues that I discussed earlier, that if officials could argue that something was operational, then they could justify not giving you that information. Um, when I was involved in some of the early budgets in the, the last term, the officials couldn't understand why I wanted so much information about how the, the council was run, what we were spending on. Uh, we've never done a zero-based budget, and that was something that uh, I was keen to do, but uh, was <laughs> not <laughs> successful with doing. That was a, that would was, have looked nervously. <laughs> that was one battle too far. But it, it's, it's always about just looking at the tiny variations on top of the already bloated council budget yeah. that you've got. And if you can't you know, see beneath the hood and try and find out all the detail, and it, there may be a very good reason for why something is being spent in a particular way or why savings can't be made, but you would hope that officials would be able to be open and transparent about that and have a discussion and then either accept that uh, case that they're making or look, is there an alternative way that we can do something and a cheaper way? for thinking of the council taxpayers. I want to turn to the personal, only because we could, we, we'll no doubt spend the next few years talking about economics and, mm. and government waste. Uh, to get, I've enjoyed getting to know you over the, the previous five or six weeks, but I'm interested, what's been your, the best thing about New Zealand so far and, and your biggest surprise? I think everyone's been very friendly. When I arrived at my new apartment and had lots of cases, um, I bumped into a group of people that I'd never met before and they all were very helpful and took every single case up to my apartment. And I found that with speaking to uh, many people and people across the political spectrum that everyone's been very nice and, and welcoming. Um, so that, that's been great. Um, I suppose the biggest surprise has been the debate, discussion, however you want to term it, around treaty politics. And I'm not going to give many opinions now as it's something that I'm trying to get my, my head around reading various different opinions from different sides and, and also trying to brush up on the, the history too, that it's not really something that we have in the in the UK for, for, for understandable reasons. Um, so it's something that I'm learning about and will reserve judgment until I know more. Who's been your biggest influence in terms of your approach to economics? Um... In terms of economists, I suppose as a Scot and someone who doesn't live too far or didn't live too far from Kirkcaldy, clearly Adam Smith is a big, a big influence and a, a big player, although very disappointing how many people don't know about him in Scotland and the UK. Um, who I, I are read, these people? I read Incredible. somewhere recently that uh, there was a, an independent bookshop um, that uh, tweeted the Adam Smith Institute to ask whether Adam Smith could come um, and speak <laughs> about his new book. Um, which I suppose that shows there's some interest in it, but disappointing that they didn't know he'd been dead for, for quite a long time. Um, but clearly he was a, a very clever man, a moral philosopher, not just an economist, um, or in that traditional um, way of looking at economics. But some of his most fundamental ideas are actually very simple, but sometimes it takes someone to actually crystallise that, the, you know, the invisible hand 
making that clear into something that, that many people could understand and a concept that we can apply to so many different situations. And yes, not everyone agrees with it and there's debate around it, but I just think that, that some of his works are, there may be quite heavy reads, but in those key concepts, he had a good way at mm. communicating it in a, in a way that was relatable to, to people. And then from the political side, um, I was once asked, asked this when uh, one of the local papers did something on, on young politicians in, in Scotland. And uh, I, I, I did say Margaret Thatcher because that's my answer, but that wasn't something that necessarily made you very popular in certain parts of Scotland. But I just think she was a transformative politician, someone with really strong convictions. But unlike perhaps Liz Truss, as we've seen quite recently, she also got the politics as well. And there were some missteps in, in her time, but she was able over 11 years to transform the country. Mm. And a lot of the, I think she was once asked, you know, what was her greatest achievement? And she said, Tony Blair. And I suppose that sums it up that yeah, you've got that in every country. She, she shifted, shifted the, the center. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's impressive. And we haven't seen someone like her since. We should, um, we, we should ensure that we reach out to the Adam Smith Institute because they have the most incredible speakers. And like us, have a have a laundry list of mm. um, of uh, incredible interns that go through the Adam Smith Institute and go on to do ama have amazing careers. Um, but the thing with, that annoy frustrates me with it, the caricature of Adam Smith in the online world is that he's just all pro business, but he was anti power concentrations of power, whether that was government or monopolies. Well, that's it. Competitions, you know, very small firms competing um, with one another. Anyway, um, next question I have for you uh, is outside of <laughs> outside of baking shortbread, which that I don't know. Very successful. One of, the, one of the staff obviously picked up as, as, as a hobby of yours. Uh, what do you do in your spare time? What are you looking forward to doing in New Zealand? Um, I have a lot of varied interests. I like going to the theatre, like reading, like hiking, and that's something that I did a lot of in, in Scotland in the Cairngorms, and clearly there are lots of um, places to go, I think. Is it tramping, you call it, here? Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. And I suppose in particular, um, I've heard a lot of good things about the various different places on the on the South Island, so as yet I've only, I've only really been around Auckland and, and Wellington, so keen to explore there and also more generally across New Zealand. And when you were a kid, what did you want to do when you grew, grew up? Other than being a campaigns <laughs> manager, obviously. I think it changed. Uh, you know, at one point I was keen to be a lawyer. Um, there were lots of different jobs that I maybe fixated on for uh, a few weeks, but it probably then became something to do with finance, something to do with economics latterly in my in my school career and then into university. And as I say, I kind of fell into these political jobs and here I am. So. Well, Callum, I wish you the, the best of luck. We, uh, it's In terms of recruiting for this role, we're looking for someone who is principled, understands the economics, but is driven to shift the dial and campaign and win. And uh, the discussion we had when we recruited you about coming down under and uh, saving New Zealand, not only from socialism, but hopefully returning New Zealand to what was a, 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 a leading light 
mm. uh, in the freedom movement around the world, um, driven by um, a, a couple of think tanks that punched well above their weight. Um, I wish you the best of luck in, in helping the Taxpayers' Union, furthering our mission and um, ensuring that New Zealand, like Scotland, can have a disproportionate role <laughs> in, in advancing liberty. Thank you. John O'Connell is a former intern at the UK Taxpayers Alliance. He started at our Westminster sister group back in 2009 under Gordon Brown. Uh, and 13 years later, he is the CEO of the Taxpayers Alliance and also the chair of our international uh, affiliate organisation, World Taxpayers Alliance. John is... Uh, leads a team of 14 at 55 Tufton Street, very similar mission to the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, uh, taxes, transparency uh, and cutting government waste across broadcast and print media uh, every single day of the week. We'll get into a bit of, um, bit of detail about your different media environment. John's down in New Zealand um, on holiday and I couldn't help but twist his arm to come to Wellington and, and come to our AGM last night and spend a day with the staff and the board at our um, planning day. John, welcome to Wellington and welcome to Taxpayer Talk. Well, thanks, Jordan, and thanks, thanks to you and the team for being such kind hosts. Why did you join the movement? What first prompted you to join the Taxpayers Alliance Back in 2009? It's a good question. I think a lot of people involved in Westminster politics or, you know, Washington politics or Wellington politics might might have joined a political movement after reading a book or picking up Hayek or something like that. Mine was much more practical. I was working in family business and the, the you know, the, the, the over, you know, over encroachment of the state into sort of decisions being made by business and things like business rates, so taxes in the UK were, you know, were, were very punitive and it meant that the, the family business couldn't grow in the way that we might want it to. So my grounding in this kind of stuff was very practical. Um, I then felt I wanted to do more, get involved and actually try and help shape things. So um, after some money saving and working around a few internships in, in Westminster, I ended up at the Taxpayers Alliance, which I always saw from afar as a... It, it was quite a new organisation at the time. It was it was exciting. It looked fun. Um, they did lots of um, interesting campaigns, and I, you know, admired it from afar. So to walk through the door at at the time it was forty three Old Queen Street um, was, you know, um, a moment I'll rem remember for the rest of my life. It was, it was great, and we've we've grown since, and I've um, been lucky enough to stay with the organisation and work in different roles, and um, took over running it in twenty sixteen. Tell us about why the obviously I didn't I'd assumed you'd always been at Fifty Five Tufton Street because on in the online world it's quite controversial. Um, we even get it in our media alerts and and Twitter feeds that we're connected to this this um, the tentacles of this um, Fifty Five Tufton Street uh, gorilla. Why is it so controversial? I think uh, people who disagree with what we say like to draw up. Sort of all sorts of weird conspiracy theories, and and you know they 
they they question our motives rather than question what we say. Um, so 55 Tufton Street is... Who funds you? And well, and all of this kind of thing, you know, you can't have um, debates in good faith um, mm. at the moment, particularly with um, being driven by social media. 55 Tufton Street is, 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 is quite boring, lovely looking, but quite boring... Um, normal office block in Westminster. It, admittedly, a, a stone's throw from uh, Westminster, uh, Westminster Abbey and... Yeah, and uh, the Houses of Parliament. Houses of so Parliament. it's very well placed in terms of um, being able to, <clears throat> excuse me, do what we do. But um, it's, you know, quite a mundane, boring office building. We occupy half of the second floor. There's various other organisations within it. Um, the, the chap who owns the building wanted to have a place for different campaigns and think tanks to have space to do their work. It's really, really that straightforward. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's it's an easy bogeyman for the left, to put it crudely. Um, so you've had so TPA was founded. Um, well, that's sort of the first one, uh, and like the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, you've had some other. I mean. I've, quite well known that the Free Speech Union, which is now separate and, and moved out, as, as you will, has been founded here. But what are the other organisations that have sort of spun out of Tufton Street? Spun out of Tufton Street? Well, like I said, there's lots of organisations that are much older than us that reside in Tufton Street. Civitas is one. Um, What's but that? It's a sort of civil society organisation, but, you know, they're, they're sort of quite sort of academically research-based. Um, but, you know... <laughs> It's equivalent to the tech sector clustering around Shoreditch in London or the legal sector clustering around you know, Bloomsbury. Um, it, it's, it's no different, really. Um, so you've got, because there was Big Brother Watch? Big Brother Watch was an organisation started by our founder. So, yeah, Big Brother Watch were based at Tufton Street for a while. They now have moved to a different location. And this is sort of anti-CCTV. Anti exactly, sort of yeah, so civil, civil liberties yeah. and standing up for civil liberties. So very impressive organisation that, you know, have long since moved out of Tufton Street and doing things under their own steer. But you know, And the um, Business for Britain? Because that was w yeah. when I was visited you before the Taxpayers Union existed and I had the sort of seed of an idea of setting up a taxpayer group and you so kindly uh, hosted me as, um, as a, a naive 26-year-old. Uh, Back in twenty early twenty thirteen, and um, met you and the and the team. There was a young organisation called Business for Britain. Yeah, so that was an organisation started by our founder Matthew Elliott. It's you know, separate to the TPA. Um, the idea behind that organisation was to build a campaign for a business voice for um, you know, getting what the UK ought to have got from renegotiations with the EU, um, and then if we didn't get what um, we ought to have got then to move to a position of um, leaving the European Union. But again, a separate organisation from the TPA, but a very successful campaign that eventually became or sort of um, gradually sort of morphed into the Vote Leave campaign, really. Which had a small impact on, on just, British politics. Yeah, yeah just a minor <laughs> impact, yeah. So. Let's go back to the Taxpayers um, Alliance. What have been your key policy victories over the last, what, you've existed what, for about 15 years now? Uh, yeah, uh, 18, 18 years, 2004. So uh, over the time, I think um, the, the, the thing that really put the TPA on the map, as it were, was our involvement in the MPs' expenses scandal in 2009. So this was when a big data set of all, all MPs' expenses was leaked to the Daily Telegraph, and they spent 
quite a long time, a number of months releasing new stories daily. This was funding for duck houses and moats. And so this was, yeah, this was um, MPs really using their expenses um, accounts for all sorts of things that... Well, and New Zealanders might say taking the piss. Yeah, um, I think that that's, to use colonial I think, language. I think that that's fa a fair analysis of it. You know, there, there was lots of things like um, people having their moats cleaned um, on the taxpayer <laughs> dime, um, as well as you know some some bigger stuff as you know flipping houses, declaring which house is your first or second home, and then claiming your mortgage costs and, and things like that. So there was yeah. some, some Just quite endemic, ga outrageous gaming. Yeah, and and it was it was quite cultural and and deep rooted, and you know it really. Um, rocked Westminster. So what was your role then as a taxpayer group if the, if, if it had been leaked? Because I didn't know it was leaked to the Telegraph. I always assumed it had actually been leaked to you and that you were... No, it was leaked to the Daily Telegra Telegraph, but we had been sending freedom of information requests on this um, topic for quite some time. So, you know, once the Telegraph got hold of the information, we worked quite, quite closely with them. Um, and then, of course, in the fallout, lots of sort of reaction and reactive work from the TPA. But we, we'd been working on that for quite some time using or attempting to use freedom of information laws. So, you know, once that was out there, it was very much something that put the TPA on the map. And then subsequently, um, our work between 2004 and 2009 was very heavily lent on freedom of information requests. Mm. And, you know... Do you, a, a, do you file more than anyone else? This is a good question that I don't know the answer to. We, we tend to do probably over a thousand in a given year. Yeah, we, 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 we're about the same. Yeah. I am very confident that in many years we file more than anyone else, mm. particularly as a local government. And I know we filed more than the official opposition yeah. when Labour were in opposition. I don't know. I've never been able to figure out how many national do. Mm. <laughs> but Well, in the UK, quite a lot of journalists use it. Um, Fairly, yeah. fairly liberally as well. So I'd imagine that there's some media institutions that maybe rival us in, in raw numbers. But, you know, uh, around the 2004 to nine, um, government accounts were also very opaque. Um, and then a lot of the work that we were doing on spending transparency was taken up, taken up by the incoming coalition government in 2010. So now, for instance, all local government spending over £500 is put online. Oh, wow. Um, that's, yeah. yeah so that's central government... One. Central government contracts of £25,000 or more are tendered online. You know, so there were lots of big transparency wins that we helped to shape in that run-up to the Conservatives taking office with the Lib Dems in 2010. So that was our first, first oh, major win. We need to win. some of those. Yeah, no, the, the spending transparency is actually pretty good in the UK. It could be better. Um, and, we can and always also do more. Your, your payroll transparency is unbelievable that we really struggle to put together these... Um, the best we've done is a town hall rich list in Auckland. But, uh, and the ombudsman backs, backs up the councils. No, no, private, private, you can't do that. Whereas I can literally look up the most junior staffer in number 10 Downing Street uh, and it's down to the dollar what they're paid. It's incredibly transparent. It is, and at local government level before 2010, it would have been as opaque as what you're describing in New Zealand now. But the change in law was such that local government had to declare the names of those in receipt of 150,000 or more. Um, they quite often go further, to be fair to them, and will um, declare the names and salaries of all senior staff, anybody with director in their title, essentially. Um, so there is a good level of transparency. We have that in bands. We, the chief executive always has. The thing that's frustrated me is if you're the chief executive of a small council, you're totally transparent. But if you're a third-tier manager 
for which we know you're a third tier manager, but we don't know who you are and we don't know your job title, but you're being paid far more, but at a much larger council, we can't get hold of any of that information. Yeah, we've managed but, to break down some of those barriers. Uh, still more to do, of course, but that was our sort of first major victory. Um, you know, subsequent to that, we've had some good success on uh, trade union facility time. This is where members of trade unions are working full time for the trade union, but on the taxpayer pound. So they might work at a local government office or they might be a teacher or a nurse, but they're not teaching or looking after patients. They're working full time for the union, but in receipt of their full salary from taxpayers. We did some work on that in 2012, 13. Um, everybody knows that facility time happens, but nobody had ever put a pound sign on it. And yeah. our first big survey of trade union facility time helped to bring about some change. Where so what you went through the public sector agencies and said how many, and you sort of require them to estimate how much staff time is actually they're don't, yeah, we, donating it was, to. It was, it's an FOI survey. It was a freedom yeah. of information survey where we asked as many public sector institutions as possible, how many staff do you have working um, on a full-time equivalent basis for the trade union. And that allowed us to then use a, you know, a civil service average pay metric to work out how much was being spent um, or how much it cost. Of course, this was probably an underestimate anyway, but you know, attaching that value to it um, helped to bring about change. And you know, that happened under the coalition government. And subsequently, we did some more work recently. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, as um, Secretary of State for Business, um, implemented some more change very recently. So that's a, another sort of one that we could chalk up. The two things I've always been envious of, the Taxpayers Alliance, well, among many things, but is that you've achieved both fuel ca uh, fuel duty ca um, cuts in a, a joint campaign with the Sun newspaper, uh, and you cut beer taxes. We've now achieved one. Um, didn't quite have the the, 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 the Sun um, page three girls to do it. We had we had Louis and the interns go and give, give do stunts and stickers around the country on petrol pumps and the like. But tell us, how did you achieve the historic beer tax reduction? What was the first yeah, in 100 for, years? Yeah, the, the first beer duty cut since the 1950s at the time. Um, what we did, again, actually, I think, if I remember correctly, we worked with the Sun newspaper on this. And the Sun newspaper... Um, Gosh. particularly at the time we do not have an equivalent yeah <laughs> no, it's the, it was the most popular it is the most popular tabloid newspaper in the country maybe just recently overtaken by the daily mail but anyway it's a very popular tabloid newspaper that has a, a small c conservative position essentially mm. um believes in you know living within your means and allow, a, allowing people to keep more of the money that they earn themselves you know really radical stuff um but you know we work with them on beer duty as well and it's we also um, produced um, beer mats or coasters or whatever you want to call them, things that you put your pint on in the pub. Um, and it was a very simple message. It was a picture of a pint with a third highlighted in red saying, you pay this much in tax. Um, and those consumer campaigns work very well. They, mm -hmm. they alert people at the point of sale almost, you know, as you go to pay, pay for the item that... Um, quite a significant chunk of it goes to the tax man you had a we've looked very closely at that campaign and it's on our um our short list for in fact it's actually one of the pitches for our um our planning day for potential campaigns next year and it is the same it's a, th a third of the cost uh of a keg of beer is tax the thing that what made your campaign so great is your um 
equivalent of the IRD, um, what is it, uh, who, who measures these revenue, or mm-hmm. has measured these revenue, H- HMRC. HMRC. Yeah. Uh, has a caricature that mm-hmm. they use of of the tax man. Um, There's Hector the tax Hector inspector. Hector the tax, tax inspector. Mm. It's so good because you could pick that up mm. and use the government's sort of caricature of the tax man yep. to say you buy, every third beer you're buying one for Hector. Yeah, indeed. And some of our campaign staff would take a big cardboard cutout of Hector around with them to pubs and all the rest of it for action days and, you know, a few stunts and all the rest of it. But um, what it does is, is it lets people know in a sort of engaging way about a very serious issue. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, that it's not just the person buying the pint. It's the the landlord or the landlady on the other side of the bar that is trying to, you know, run a business. Um, so you know, the tax is impacting on small businesses too. So it's about um, both the consumer and also to an extent the producer on on this campaign but yeah um bringing that to life for for people in a meaningful way helped to bring about significant change we got the first beer duty cut and you know at the time it was over 50 years so uh, so that's do you think that i mean we are more marketing organizations you mentioned the other groups in and around 55 tufton street the and the Smith Institute, the um, Institute of Economic Affairs, the Reform Think Tank, the uh, Policy Exchange that um, Christopher Luxon recently visited when he was uh, in the UK. You uh, seem to be more about, you mentioned the grassroots action days. What's your relationship with the sort of traditional think tank community? We've really only got um, one or two in New Zealand, the New Zealand Initiative um, which we work closely with, and there's a group in Auckland called Maxim, which is a faith-based uh, led uh, institution. Uh, what is what is our role, and what's our difference to them, and how do we work with the commentary at the media and the way you so effectively do mm-hmm. to place a taxpayer voice um, in and around Westminster? Yeah, I. I mean, contrary to what Twitter might say, none of those organisations are based at 55 Tustin Street. They're very separate and independent and have their own offices. But, um, you know, but the, all within a stone's throw, though. In, in well, they're all in SW1. I mean, why wouldn't you be in SW1 if that's the area in which you're seeking to influence? That's the postcode of, of Westminster. It is. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, that's that's the rough postcode of Westminster. So, you know, groups on the left themselves will be in SW1 because you need to be within reach of parliament to have meetings, to be going to the TV studios, all the rest of it. Um, so the, the IEA, of course, are sort of the granddaddy of the think tanks. They're, they've been around since the, I don't know, the 50s maybe. Um, That's probably, the Thatcher think tank. It is. And, you know, they sowed the ground for a lot of um, the, the reforms that Thatcher implemented in the uh, 70s and 80s, um, largely on privatisation and, and cutting top marginal rates of tax and things like that. Um, Adam Smith Institute have been around since the 70s or the 80s, the Centre for Policy Studies too. Um, so th- there's quite a fertile sort of, um, you know, um, there's, there's a good ecosystem of think tanks in Westminster, each doing sort of slightly different things, um, almost fortuitously. But um, our role is slightly different. You know, we we campaign. You know, all of the other organisations produce research and attempt to communicate it to... Um, politicians, you know, through things like the media, it's all you know, fairly standard stuff that we try to do the same. But I think the the, the difference that the TPA has is that we. 
come out onto the ground and we leave the M25, which is the motorway that encircles London, we actually get out to the rest of the country. Um, so, you know, we'll pick up um, activity in Newcastle or Ipswich or Leicester or wherever mm. else that nobody else in Westminster is paying attention to, um, to you know, campaign on local issues as well as national ones. So I think that's where we really make a difference um, and, and sort of add to the centre-right voice, if you will. I want to just change um, your if you could change your hat now to your role as chairing the uh, International World Taxpayers Associations. Are we winning? And by that I mean that are we? It, it feels like we're going back to the nineteen seventies, uh, or am I to, am, am I uh, too pessimistic? And when you look across the Anglosphere, the English speaking world. Uh, w- w- what's your view on on what's to come? It's it's a huge question and a, and a really important one. I, I I'll start with the sort of downsides. I think that um, yeah, to use crude terms, we'll call it the left and the right, just for for ease of um, argument. Economic left and right. Yeah, economic left and right, just for ease of argument. Um, so I'd say that the left dominate um, some quite important institutions. Um, across the Western world, you know, culture, academia, the arts, um, you know, you name it, charities, they, they pretty much dominate um, these sectors that have quite outsized influence, uh, non-governmental institutions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what that means is that, you know, we'll take the example of the UK, a, a conservative government was elected in 2019 with a majority of AT and have found it very difficult to enact reforms, um, not just um, the sort of, the whirlwind um, sort of demise of Liz Truss, but even before that, under Boris Johnson, they found it very difficult to enact reforms. I mean, COVID came along and they had to respond as a sort of national government and that that's all well and good. But, you know, in sort of quote-unquote normal times, they found it difficult to enact reform. And large part that is down to the institutional dominance of um, of that the left have. And I think that's that, that's... Seems to me to be on a very sort of basic analysis what's happening in other Western countries too. Um, you know, the, the, again, crudely speaking, the right can win elections, but they don't. They can't enact change, and that that's that's sort of a, a downside. On the, on the upside, though, you know, again, taking UK as an example, the demise of Liz Truss can be seen as a as a you know hundred percent negative thing uh, for people who believe in the kind of things that we do. However. We are talking about fiscal responsibility again. We are having that discussion about balancing the books and living within your means and all of that kind of good stuff that's at the core of what the TPA and and the New Zealand Taxpayers Union do. I mean, we're deficit hawks at the end of the day. We don't like to see national debts climbing up, you know, um, asking our children and grandchildren to pay for things that we want today. You know, that idea of responsibility and living within your means is back on the conversation again. But but Liz Truss almost picked up the bumper sticker slogan of cut taxes without the key thing we're fighting for, which is you've got to focus at quality spending, stupid. Absolutely. Um, you know, cut waste, cut taxes. They, they missed the first <laughs> Yeah. Cut yeah. waste. And then you can cut taxes, right? Um, I think the part of the problem with um, the trust government's announcements was that they didn't have that sense of balance. There was no idea or... You know, they hadn't put meat on the bones of how they were going to rest, uh, restrain spending. And, you know, if you're going to, you know, just have a program of tax cuts and a promise of, oh, spending restraint sometime down the line, it's 
possibly unsurprising that financial markets respond in the way that they do because they think that you're going to act irresponsibly and build up debts and um, become less credible. So it's, you know, we cautioned at the time that spending restraint was necessary to balance with um, what would have been welcome tax cuts. And, you know, I think in the bigger picture, I think that um, it's been slightly unfair on, on that government in many ways because a lot of the economic fundamentals were there and are there for whoever's in power. You know, we've had sort of a decade or more of cheap and easy money. Um, well, you, you used the, one of the, your successes that you, you might not, but as an outsider perspective that, um, and I know this because it's something I really want us, the TU, to be focusing um, on, is you had Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, the hero among the um, Conservative Party membership, but the line that sort of you guys successfully got out there in the commentariat is we have the highest tax burden in... 70 years, 70 zero, years. Yeah, yeah. And, um, the, and this is the good years? You know, we've had a, a w- w- how many years of a, of a conservative government and, yet, and we've now got a, a prime minister, well, then you had a prime minister with this enormous majority and yet the highest tax burden in, in 70 years. It's lurched over to Liz Truss, which is she's come in, wanted to cut... Ta- although actually even that's wrong... It's not cut taxes, it's cancel mostly planned tax increases. And now, even in New Zealand, we're getting having to deal with op-eds and um, the commentariat saying, look, the, uh, the uh, um, far-right libertarian experiment failed. Well, going back to the tax model that, uh, that uh, Gordon Brown initially had, um, uh, Tony Blair uh, put in place is hardly uh, a right-wing fantasy. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Truss's tax plan, if enacted, I think would have brought the tax tax revenues down to about 2019 levels. I don't remember that being some sort of scorched earth, you know. Um, I, it, again, if anything, um, this sort of, sort of softish centre-left view of the world is the one that's been repudiated, in my view. I mean, look, we've got cheap and easy money, like flooding um, the economy with with you know mortgages that perhaps people couldn't afford, and we're now back to a sort of an economic reality where we're using interest rates to control inflation. Um, and the medicine might be tough, but I, I think it's it's showing that good old fashioned basic um, economics, you know, still holds true. Modern monetary theory, you know, has been debunked quite clearly. Printing money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been debunked, and I you know, a bigger problems are. I feel that, you know, with COVID and with um, the government's intervention into the energy markets is that there is a sense that the government will fix everything for you. You don't have to worry. If there's any big problem, the government will step in and fix it for you. And I think that sort of sense of personal responsibility has been eroded. And I think that's a, that's that's something quite big that um, people who believe in economic freedom or, or however you want to phrase it um, need to challenge. One of, um, you know, I think that we should also look at the other side uh, of the coin of what's happened in Britain is that the markets have pulled in unfunded tax cuts, but have also put, and this is, um, I think it's Kate, your, your friend at the Spectator magazine, Kate Andrews, pontificated this, that the look at it from the other side, that it makes the Labour Party putting together a budget or proposals for your election in two years' time much harder if you're sort of subject to whatever chancellor you have is subject to almost market approval. And that is that, I mean, that 
sensible money is now sort of baked into the markets in a way that it might not have been in the 1970s. Yeah, it's a really good point. And um, I think the other thing that the Labour Party might be challenged with is, um, okay, so what exactly will you cut in spending terms? I think um, being asked specifically what they plan to cut will be challenging for them. Um, So some market discipline might not be a bad thing in the sense that if and when the Labour Party win the 2024 election, they're going to have to play within that those same parameters of, you know, increasing interest rates and um, sort of stable market conditions. And, and that might um, mean some fiscal discipline. And it really, you know, as a non-partisan group, it doesn't really matter who's, which party's in number 10, our message doesn't change, right? Um, we'll be there to sort of say, you know, spending restraint, cut waste and... Um, so if it is the Labour Party in there, I think some some of that analysis holds true or will hold true um, that they will be subject to the same market disciplines that the Tories have found out to their cost. You were very kind to me a few weeks ago and um, uh, hosted me at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham and I watched you interview Kwasi Kwarteng, the then-Chancellor. Um, I understand last year you interviewed Rishi Sunak for your... Um, just explain to listeners the um, what was it? Fourteen thousand odd people went to the Conservative Party conference. Um, uh, Fourteen of them went to the conference, and the, the thirteen thousand nine hundred and uh, and eighty six went to the literally hundreds of events within the secure zone, but hosted by think tanks and pressure groups and um, uh, every friends of the Conservative Party from even all around the world um, put on. And your uh, what was it? Think Tent is partic- particularly popular, and one of your events is the annual interview with the Chancellor. We could, uh, uh, I will volunteer that I was very unimpressed with um, Kwasi Kwarteng, and in fact had said to a few people in New Zealand, I don't think this government's got legs. I think it's a matter of weeks, not months. It turned out to be less than two weeks until they were gone. But Having interviewed Rishi a number of times, what will he be like as Prime Minister? Yeah, yeah, you know, starting that question, or starting the answer with um, Kwasi Kwarteng, yeah, I can understand why um, he was quite guarded in that session. Um, the government were under a lot of fire, um, and but he was they were among, having to make a lot of U-turns. I mean, he was, you, you provided him a room full of... Because the other thing I think was amazing at the Tory conference, unlike the National Party conferences here, is that, okay, you had the, all the apparatchiks and weirdos and, and the like, um, and the people that were there sort of, because you know, the, the Blue Rinse Brigade, we'd, we'd call them here. But you had incredibly talented people, the sort of lawyers, the, 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 the investment bankers and stuff that were clearly major Tory donors, and they were there too. And I saw a lot, because naturally, you know, talking to people in your tent and the, um, and the like, here you provided a incredibly warm audience of a couple of hundred people, and yet he was, it, it, he was so guarded. It was such a bizarre interview. Yeah, and look, we, we, we obviously want to challenge the Chancellor. We're not there to give him an easy ride, right? So, um, you know, we want to press him on the need to reduce spending, um, to balance the tax cuts and, and all of these kind of things. So we were there, definitely there to give him a robust challenge. But I mean, ideologically friendly, not... I mean, we're sure, not party sure, sure, cheerleaders. Sure. 
Yeah, well, yeah, perhaps. But even even so, you know, um, it was not our job to give him an easy ride. But at the same time, um, he was probably under all sorts of different pressures. But yeah, I can see what you mean. It was a it was an opportunity for the chancellor to lay out um, exactly what you know, some slightly more detailed plans on what might be forthcoming because there, there was going to be a, a medium-term fiscal plan um, not too not too far afterwards, after Tory conference, which has now been moved again. Um, but it was, it was a decent opportunity for him to sort of lay out some, some more detail that perhaps he didn't take. But um, going back to Rishi, which we, we, which we did the year before, um, you know, he's clearly extremely smart, um, mm-hmm. very across the detail, very across the numbers, um, he talks a lot about being a low-tax conservative. Um, the only issue with that is that a lot of his actions suggest that that's not necessarily the case. Now, he will argue that he, he needs to sort of rebuild the public finances um, and then he can enact um, you know, tax cuts over a longer um, time frame. We hope that's true. Of course we do. Um, you know, Is there a degree in the modern political era of... I mean, we- we're trying to figure out the what a incoming national national act government would be like, and uh, the minister of finance here uh, was likely to be a, a really smart young woman, um, Nicola Willis. But there seems to be around the Commonwealth ministers of of finance or chancellors of their, their equivalents that talk the talk but don't, unlike the Ruth Richardsons or Roger Douglases of the world um, or the Thatchers, uh, uh, walk the walk. And it seems that everyone wants to go to heaven and partly it's the role of our groups to ensure that we, we guide them, to the, give them the, the North Star, but no one wants to die. I think a lot of it's to do with the spending side. Um, it's very easy to talk about, I'm a low-tax conservative, but... And then after the but is loads of stuff that suggests that but, you're not quite but, a low tax conservative. But we have accepted the word austerity yeah. that that Labour have have labelled mm-hmm. that from the GFC, and we definitely don't want. Um, I think I think you're right. There's a big problem with language there. Um, you know, living within your means it doesn't necessarily mean austerity. Um, austerity is quite a poisonous word, which doesn't allow a lot of room for any kind of discussion about spending look uh, you know if you listen to any of the flagship political programs in the UK you'll hear everybody argue well why can't the government just do something about that why can't the government do more why aren't you spending more and instead of defending things on first principles I, and I can understand this um, government ministers quite often sort of you know want to seem want to be seen to be nice so they'll say oh no no we are we are spending loads and we'll we'll spend more than labor will and you know we'll tax big companies more than labor will and and they're automatically playing on the opponent's pitch and that 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 sort of sense of reclaiming the language and and arguing on first principles about personal responsibility and living within your means needs to be recaptured and we talked about it earlier in the conversation but perhaps there's a chance of that again now that we are talking about okay you can't just cut taxes willy-nilly. You can't just increase spending willy-nilly. So there has to be some sort of fiscal responsibility, and maybe that's an opportunity to reclaim some of this. No, so that's winning. That, that's what we're about. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, I think that the amount of spending that was done during the pandemic, it will 
you know, when the inquiry is launched in the UK, it will uncover untold waste. And wasteful spending, you know, is what our groups are about, you know, uncovering that wasteful spending. So these two big interventions that have happened in the UK using taxpayers' money, both the pandemic and interventions in energy bills, are both threats in the sense that a hell of a lot of money has been spent and people have sort of handed over personal responsibility to the government on all sorts of big issues. Um, but there are opportunities because we can now again talk about that we need to get a grip on spending. And if we get a grip on spending, we can start to tackle the 70 year high tax burden because, you know, some tweaks to taxes that were attempted by the last government, you know, as you said, Jordan, some of them were cancelled, cancellations of planned increases. There weren't huge tax cuts in, in, in any sense. So getting to grip with spending um, is back on the cards, mm. but um, language is going to be increasingly important in that. And, you know, moving away from poisonous words like austerity and talking about living within your means is going to be a way that our groups can help shape that. John, you were very kind to me uh, coming up 10 years ago, no, uh, nine and a half years ago when you hosted me and um, when it was just the Taxpayers Union was just an idea or a seed that had been planted by yourself and Matthew Elliott uh, and Matt Sinclair. Uh, you've recently hosted me again for my first time back in back in Britain uh, in nine years and you let me both um, host me at the Conservative Party conference but allowed me for a couple of days to literally shadow and pester your staff and see how an organisation at the other side of the world doing very similar things, albeit uh, in what our sort of old business model was, which was really just through media that it just blows my mind that you literally have a television studio in your office because you guys do so many lives, crosses from BBC, Sky News, GB News, etc., etc. Et uh, but having spent some time now with my team, both in Auckland and, um, and here in Wellington, what are the lessons for us? How do we do a better job of fighting for taxpayers, particularly in the context where it's by no means certain but probably 70% likely of a change of government next year? Well, two things, really. The first is I would flip that around and say what we can learn from you. Because in my time over here, um, looking at what you guys are doing in the online space has blown my mind, and it's, it's inspirational. And as chair of the World Taxpayers Association, I often say to groups, look at what the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, Union are doing. Because wh where there's you know lots of obstacles in place for groups all around the world, um, the, the thing is to overcome those obstacles and to not give in and, and you know for whatever reason you guys have come up against certain challenges and roadblocks and you thought well, we don't have a conservative media we bring the telegraph or the spectator here right please. well i mean or the sun <laughs> so in lieu of that what have you done right you you've moved moved a lot of the conversation online and um some of the work you're doing in that space is an inspiration to other groups around the world and i would say world leading so um so Turning your question around, I say we, we've got a lot to learn from you. Um, secondly, um, sort of lessons, going back to what I was sort of alluding to earlier, you know, Boris Johnson won in 2019 with a big majority of 80, which is big in UK terms, and, you know, wasn't able to change a great deal. And part of the reason is that, the, again, crudely speaking, the left dominate key institutions. Um, my warning would be, even if the nationals do win next year, um, to start thinking about 
the idea that they're not going to be able to do everything that a they say that they want or b that you want um because they will presumably come up against the same roadblocks is so is to start thinking about how um we, th th there can be a pushback against that sort of civil society that is dominated by you know the economic left john it's a pleasure to have you in new zealand and, and swap notes and learn so much i think that um you're far too humble about what what what, what we can what um, we can and are uh, learning from you. Um, but in the meantime, I certainly hope you enjoy your holiday here in New Zealand. Um, and thank you so much for giving your time for a couple of days to to spend with me and my team, um, and uh, and teach us what what you are. Thank you for joining Taxpayer Talk. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a genuine pleasure. Mm -hmm.